open your Bible to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be studying this morning from verses 4 through 10. And as this is our second service back together, it's our first actual kind of live service in that sense, uh, I think this text could not be more timely than it is. Um, I think that as we come together again, that there is a possibility, not just for, for us here at this church, but for other churches as well and for the church as a whole, to, that in our excitement that we might give off the impression that this building, that this place that we're in right now is more important than it actually is. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we think that way, but I think we may give off that impression. Uh, we know the cliche that the church isn't the building. What is it? It's, it's the people, right? It's not the building. It's the people. And a cliche is a cliche for a reason because it's true and, it, and it's well known. But in our excitement to, to regather I do think that it is possible that, that we could give off the wrong impression about what the church is and what this building is. Um, and so I want us to just look today as we read Second Peter, I mean First Peter chapter 2, I want us to look and see what really is the church. What is the church? Um, we say that it's the people, but how is that the case? How can we make the statement that the church is the people, uh, the gathering of of people more specifically because in a lot of God's word in, in the Old Testament for example the place in which people worshipped was very important the place was very important the tabernacle was the chief place where God's presence would reside so in those times it was very important for God's people to be in or at least around a very particular place a particular structure even so then how do we say as Christians today that the church isn't a building, it's a people. How is that true? And I think we see in Peter some, some good theological truths that, that, we can, that we can cause us to say with confidence that the church isn't the building, it's the people. But then also, what does that mean for our worship? How does that affect the way we think about church and what church really is? And in this passage, Peter gives us a description of the believer. And in this description, I think we get an answer to that question to how we can say that the people gathering together is more important than the place in which they gather. So as we read, notice what Peter says about believers. Notice two things, how he identifies them and then what responsibilities he gives to them. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. 
Dear God, we pray this morning. Uh, we, we know that we need uh, your spirit to, to be with us this morning as we try to uh, study your word, dear God. We ask that you would um, that you'd fill this room, that you would help us to uh, see truths from this word, dear God, and, and how we might apply these to ourselves, dear God, and, and ultimately what you're just trying to say to us through it. I pray that you would help us to uh, be able to hear it well and to be able to respond. All I say I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So in these, in these first couple verses of our passage, Peter gives what I want to call two attributes of every believer. I'll make sure this is working. Two attributes of every believer. And we see in verse 5 that he refers to the believer as a living stone. And then also in verse 5 and in verse 9, he refers to believers as a holy priesthood. So in those two things, we see an identity of the believer as living stones. And we also see a responsibility of believers as a holy priesthood. And so we see these two components, and those two components are identity and responsibility of what it means to be a believer. Now let's break down each one of these things one by one and kind of walk through each of these ideas. So first let's look at the idea that we're called living stones. That's what he says, that we're living stones. The purpose of us being a living stone is that we are being built as a spiritual house. That's what he says in verse 5. But before he gets to that, what I want us to see first is the idea that our identity as a living stone is based on Jesus' identity as a living cornerstone. He gives that title to Jesus before he gives it to us. Look, look again to that first uh, verse that we read, verse 4. Before he says anything about believers, he says about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone. So before we can be a living stone, Jesus must first be this living stone, this living cornerstone. He must come first. He is the foundation of this house that Peter is talking about. And as Peter is, is, is writing here, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, in verse 6 right here, as he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So then, Jesus is this chosen and precious cornerstone of this spiritual house. And more important than that, he is a living cornerstone. And not just because he at some point has lived, but because he is currently living today, because he is resurrected from the dead and he is living today. He is the always living cornerstone. So the only way that we can be living stones is based on Jesus' identity as the living stone who came first. So the second truth then that I want us to consider is that our identity as living stones is that as living stones, we are building material for God's church. We are building material for God's church. When Peter says that, uh, that we are being built up as a spiritual house, I think what he's referring to is the church. I think quite plainly that, that he's referring to the building of the church. And think about what Peter has already heard from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he's already heard this idea of a church being built. And there's a play on words about rocks there, but I think the thing that Jesus is pointing to is that this, this church is going to be built on me. Because just before he says that to Peter, Peter said to Jesus, you are 
uh, Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Jesus, I mean, Peter responds, you are the Christ, son of the living God. So in response to that, Jesus says on this truth, I think, this idea that Jesus is the son of the living God, on that I will build my church. And so I think that conversation that Jesus had with Peter may have very well been on Peter's mind as he's penning these words, as he's writing these words. So then for Peter to say that we are being used as stones to build a spiritual house, I think that is a relay of what Jesus told him. And he's saying to believers that you are stones and you are building blocks of this church that Jesus is building. And most importantly, that Jesus is the cornerstone of that church. So then I think in our identity, we're identified as pieces of a whole. The church isn't some physical building. We know that. We say that. The church isn't a physical building made up of, of brick and mortar. Instead, it is a spiritual house made from the gathering of living stones. Not some old building made from bricks, but a gathering of living stones. And we as living stones are based on the foundation of Christ as a cornerstone and a living stone. The third thing then that I want us to see is that for us to be useful as living stones, we have to have fellowship with Jesus, but also with other believers. We have to have fellowship with Jesus and other believers. Now, I don't know much about modern architecture. I'm sure a lot of you know a lot more about modern architecture than I do, or even past architecture. Uh, but from my understanding of what the cornerstone was used for back in this time is that it was very important that this cornerstone be placed just right and that it be just the right stone, just the right shape, just the right size. Uh, listen to this kind of definition from, from Wikipedia, the most reliable source, about what a cornerstone is. It says, the cornerstone or foundation stone or setting stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. So even in this kind of secular definition from Wikipedia, you see how important a cornerstone is to architecture. It is the, uh, the, the setting for the whole building is based on this one cornerstone. It has to be the right shape and it has to be square if the whole building is going to be square and sturdy itself. So and if, if this spiritual house that we are being used to build is going to be straight and square, then the stones, which are us, have to be aligned to Jesus. Right? So we have to be aligned to this cornerstone who is Jesus, but also we have to be aligned to one another because a building wouldn't work very well if the stones wouldn't sit on top of each other. Right? If the stones wouldn't match up, then a building wouldn't be built very well. So we have to be in fellowship with Jesus and also with one another. And that doesn't mean that we have to be identical because if you think about, a, think about an old building, just think about an old stone-made building, do each of those stones look identical? No, they're, they're, they're different shapes, they're different sizes, but they all have fit together to build this building, right? And so we as stones have to be aligned to Jesus as the cornerstone, but also to each other. We have to be in fellowship with each other. Um, and I, I think it's safe to say that as living stones that we shouldn't be in isolation, if at all possible. Now, these times are much different times. Some people may need to be in isolation during these times. But in general, in normal conditions, I think it's safe to say that you can't be, or you shouldn't be at least, a living stone in isolation. Because what good is a stone, what good is a stone that's used to build something if it's sitting completely by itself? 
there's not much, not much purpose there, right? If it's completely by itself, there's not much that it can do. But when it's attached to a cornerstone, when it's aligned with a cornerstone, and when it's built off other living stones, other people who are part of the church, then something amazing can be built. So then, as living stones, we need to align ourselves to Jesus, and we need to align ourselves with each other and have fellowship with each other. I think Peter's ultimately talking about the universal church. He's talking about the, the big picture church. But I think even on our level of a local church, we see this to be true, that we are built up of living stones, of individual believers. So our focus as a church and as individuals needs to be on Jesus, needs to be completely on him. Because uh, if it's not, then the things that we do will be done in vain. Worship is important. Preaching is important. Events are important. But each of these things have to be centered on Jesus. They have to be aligned to this cornerstone. Because if our worship isn't about Jesus, or isn't at least glorifying to Jesus, then we're just singing to hear ourselves sing. And we have pretty good congregational singing, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't take off on a, on a Sunday just to come here uh, singing. And if our preaching isn't about Jesus, doesn't draw people to Jesus, then it's just idle words. And if that's the case, then you'd be better off listening to, to some kind of TED Talk or inspirational talk online. And if our events aren't about Jesus, if they're not aligned to this cornerstone of Jesus, then we're just holding social gatherings, and they don't really have all that much value. So if we're going to be a church, number one, and more specifically, a church that is glorifying and honoring to God, we have to be centered around this cornerstone and, and, and aligned to, to it and also to one another. And to do this, to center our church and more specifically our individual lives around Jesus is not the norm. It's, it's not what society would normally do. So it will cause you to stand out, to look differently, to maybe even be rejected. Even in the Bible Belt they were in the day. Even in our culture right here in, in southern Alabama, uh, we, we still would stand out. Those who actually and, and truly give their lives to Jesus and, and have centered their lives around Jesus would stand out. Nobody would reject Christ, or not many people around here would say, no, I don't believe in that. But how many people actually and truly have given their life to Jesus and have centered their lives around him and has placed him as the cornerstone of their life. So even in this, in this Bible Belt, there still would be some standing out and there would be even some rejection of us and some shame from them. But Peter and then Isaiah, as he's quoting Isaiah, knew this to be true. In verse 4, Peter says that Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God he was chosen and precious. And then in verse 7 and 8, he quotes Isaiah again, he says... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So to the world, Jesus is this stone of stumbling. But to those who, verse 9, have told us, are this chosen royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, to them and to us, he is the cornerstone. He is the one who goes first. He goes before us. He is uh, first the living stone and so because he is living stone, we can have life. Chapter 2 that we've been reading, verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the first thing that we see, as Peter puts in this passage, is that as believers, our identity is that we are living stones like Jesus. 
to be a living stone means that we are in fellowship with Jesus, and thus we have life through him, and we have fellowship with other believers, and thus we are the church. Secondly, what I want us to see is our responsibility then as believers. This identity of, of being a living stone that we've been giving comes with this responsibility to be a royal priesthood. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this new status that we have as living stones comes with this responsibility to be a holy priesthood. And the way that we do that, according to Peter here, is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So what it means for us to be this royal priesthood is, is first of all, that we have this direct access to God. We're able to go to Him in prayer. We're able to uh, you know, ask things from God. Uh, we're able to uh, just completely have this direct access to God. But um, just a little quick disclaimer, it's not uh, the pastorhood of all believers. I don't want to preach away me and Matt's job security here. It's a priesthood of all believers, but it's, it's not that every believer is a pastor or a preacher, but I said this, every believer has this direct access to God, this, this ability to pray to God. And this really makes our church, as a, as a Protestant church, stand out against what an Old Testament church would look like, but also what a Catholic church would look like. You know, we don't believe that we have to go through a priest in order to confess our sins before God. We have that direct access to God ourselves. And so as we look at this royal priesthood, the first thing that I want us to see, kind of like the identity, is that our priesthood is based on Christ's priesthood. Our priesthood is based on the priesthood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God called priests to make sacrifices on behalf of all Israel and to pray on behalf of all Israel. But because we're in Christ, we don't need another human mediator because Jesus has been that perfect priest. He's been that perfect mediator. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus has been this great high priest who has not only been a human, but he's passed through the heavens. And because of that, he is the perfect priest. And because of that, we don't need another high priest. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, has been this perfect high priest. So because of this, those who are in Christ, and those who have a relationship, uh, or those who are in Christ, have a relationship with God because of that, and are very much so like priests of the Old Testament. In verse 9, when, when Peter calls believers a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, don't those things sound familiar? Those are all echoes of what God had told Israel in the Old Testament. And so now those things are not only true just for a select few priests. Those things are true of all believers who are part of this royal and holy, what it's also called, priesthood. So then... The second thing that I want us to consider is that as a holy priesthood, what is it that we do? What do we do as a holy priesthood? And the first thing that we see in verse 9 is that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's how he follows up saying what he says about us in verse 9. He follows it up by saying to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous life. So in one sense, our responsibility is very much so to proclaim God's excellencies. Those, that, that's the gospel of Jesus. That's the greatest thing God has done is to bring us Jesus and his gospel. So to proclaim that to the world, I think, is, is first and foremost our responsibility. And think about, again, priests in the Old Testament. They were very much so a light to Israel. They guided Israel in, in a spiritual way. And so much like that, believers, all believers today, should be like a light to the world, to draw people to God through their own lives and to show what it is like to live a life for God. So we're to proclaim the excellencies of God, but then also we're told in verse 5 to offer spiritual sacrifices. It says in verse 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what then are these sacrifices? Peter doesn't give us a ton of detail, but we can look to other places and see more examples of what this might be. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So then later, Paul goes on to say, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So then kind of to summarize, I think, what, what Peter means to say to, to offer sacrifices is basically obedience and praise to God, to, to proclaim His excellencies, but then also to live a life that is holy, to live a life that is obedient to God's Word. So you could hear this, and you could, you could read Peter, and you could say, well, I really, need to start, I really need to start doing that more. I need to start proclaiming God's Word more. I really need to start praising God more often. I really need to be more obedient as a Christian. I really need to share the gospel of Jesus with other people. And those things may be true. Those are good things that we should do. But those things alone will never be enough to be acceptable to God. So then what do we do? Isaiah 64 verse 6 even tells us that even our righteous deeds is like a polluted garment, or you're probably more familiar with the term filthy rags. Even the best things we could do is like filthy rags. So then what do we do? How do we make a, a sacrifice that is acceptable to God? Well, Peter points that out in verse 5. He says that we make these sacrifices, and he has the caveat that they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices that we make to God, may, may it be living a holy life, doing our best to obey God's word, loving one another, being fervent in spirit, those things, they don't stand on their own, but through Jesus, those good works, those things that we can do are acceptable to God because, G, because He is the perfect sacrifice. He's given this perfect sacrifice. So we offer them not on our own, but we offer them through the blood of Jesus. And then, and only then, can those things be acceptable to God. And because that's true, it's important that we get the order right. We are made living stones first, and then we're made uh, priests. Given, uh, subsequent to that gift that we're given of being a, a living stone, then we're giving the responsibilities as believers to be a priesthood. The careful diligence to do our responsibilities isn't what makes us living stones. Us being living stones causes us to do those things. It's an outflow of us being living stones that we, that we have these priestly responsibilities. 
These, of course, aren't the only attributes that the Bible gives for believers. This is kind of a summary from Peter. These are the two that Peter chose to mention, this idea of uh, being living stones and being a royal priesthood um, to show us what the church is and those who make up the church may look like. And as we close, I want us to look at three kind of points of, of application, three ways we can ask, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our church? So first, I want to circle back to that idea that we started with. The church isn't the building, it's the people. Because, because we're living stones, because that's true, then we can say this with confidence. And because every believer under Christ is, is in this priesthood of believers, we can say with confidence that the church is not a building, that it is the people. Not a particular building, not a particular priest, not a particular domination. It is the people of Jesus gathered together. So that, that's why that we as a church were able and then even willing to suspend some, some in-person gatherings for a short while because the church didn't cease. We didn't stop having church. We still found ways to meet together and to be together and to love one another. So because of that, the church never stopped. We just changed how we were doing church. So first of all, the church isn't the building, it's the people. And secondly, because the church isn't a building because the church is the people we need fellowship with one another we desperately need to gather together and to be together I think that's one reason why that while we were apart that we found such joy in calling each other through our little conference call and, and talking with one another and, and 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 giving prayer requests that way and just hearing each other's voice um, you see, this, this idea of the priesthood of all believers that we mentioned, this idea that every believer is a priest, it could be used for some people to say, well, if that's true, if, if we really are all priests, then why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to be a part of a church? And, but if we remember what it is that a priest does, we can kind of fix that. We can correct that because a priest is to pray for others and to be a light to the world, and that cannot be done in isolation. So remember that we are priests, under Christ, not monks under Christ. We don't live in isolation. We live in public, showing the world what it's like to be a Christian and to live under God. And so I hope that knowing that truth lets you know how much the church needs you and how much you need the church. And lastly, the foundation and cornerstone of the church as a whole and every believer who makes up the church must be Jesus. So if it's true that we're living stones and if it's true that we're priesthoods who are under Jesus, then we must be centered to Jesus, us as individuals and as a church. If not, everything that we do will be done in vain. And while the world may reject this idea, the world may reject us doing this because they rejected Jesus for it, Peter reminds us um, in verse 6 that God, or that Jesus was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. I want to read verse 6 one more time, and then we'll close. It says, Behold, I am, a, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word, dear God, and to look at the identity that we have as believers, but also the responsibility that we have as believers. I pray that you would go with us as we live in this uh, kind of crazy world right now, this, God, this, this, uh, this different way of life in the meantime, that we would be intentional, dear God, to be uh, living stones, to be uh, light in this world, dear God, that we would um, find ways to be intentional about, about sharing 
who you are, dear God, and, and just showing people the faith that we have during such a hard times, dear God. Um, I pray that as we uh, continue to, to find ways to meet together, as we continue to, to have services here, dear God, that you would keep us safe, that you would protect us, dear God, and that you would allow us to persevere through this. And all these things I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.